Kia ora and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners, the Auckland Faculty. I'm Dr Louise Kugler and today I'm talking to Dr Rona Carroll about transgender health, managing the transition. Rona is a specialist GP working in student health services and a senior lecturer at the Department of Primary Health Care and General Practice at the University of Otago in Wellington. She has a special interest in transgender healthcare and is a member of PATHA, which is the Professional Association for Transgender Health Aotearoa. She is on the Education Committee. Rona provides gender-affirming hormone therapy to trans and non-binary patients and is interested in educating medical students and health practitioners in this area. Welcome, Rona, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Louise. Great to be here. So in this podcast, we're focusing on the physical aspects of the transgender patient, Taha Tanana. This is episode one, and we're going to discuss the physical health and discuss management up to puberty suppression in this episode. In episode two, we'll discuss the medical and surgical initiation and maintenance of gender-affirming hormone treatment and surgical interventions. So Rona, focusing on physical health it's always important to realise it's very difficult to separate out physical health from psychological health, from family health, from spiritual health. But today, for the purposes of this podcast, we'll just focus on this area. So let's begin with transition goals. These can look very, very different for different patients for different reasons. How do you discuss these goals with your patients? And what sort of questions should we be asking them? Right, it's really important to understand that there isn't one set way of doing things and, and everyone's journey is different. So some people will need access to hormones and surgery to relieve their gender dysphoria, but others don't. Um, it's a very individual thing, so you need to listen to your patient, be guided by their needs and try not to make assumptions. I tend to use the, the term gender affirmation rather than transition. And gender affirmation can involve social changes, medical or legal steps to affirm a person's gender. So that can include things like changing your name, pronouns, clothing, hair, or, or things like wearing a chest binder, as well as hormone therapy or surgery. And it's worth remembering that not everybody will identify with the binary gender identity. So some people will identify as non-binary rather than uh, male or female. So exploring a person's goals at the start is, is really important. So you can have discussions about what hormones can and can't do, uh, create realistic expectations and so that you can inform your patient about what services are available and how to access them and whether they're funded and things like that. Informed consent is crucial before embarking on any form of medical treatment or intervention. And I get the feeling that it may require a number of visits before a patient and the clinician are ready to complete the necessary consent forms. What do we need to consider when having these discussions? And is primary care the right place to be completing consent? Yeah, so informed consent means that you're providing adequate and accurate information to enable a person to make an informed decision. So the principle is that adults with capacity can make informed decisions about their health care and they should be supported to do so. So in the context of transgender health, the term is often used to indicate a process for accessing gender affirming care, usually hormones, without necessarily needing a so-called mandatory assessment by a mental health professional. So in many situations, at the moment, a report from a mental health professional is required before gender-affirming hormones are started. 
And the informed consent model kind of moves away from this, recognizing that a competent adult who has enough information can make a decision about their own health. So that involves assessing a patient's capacity to make an informed decision and, and to consent to treatment. And it also requires a prescriber who has enough knowledge to, to provide the required information so that the consent is actually informed. The prescriber needs to be able to explain risk, side effects, expected effects, alternatives, and to be able to answer any questions that might come up. So it's important to remember that avoiding harm is a fundamental consideration too, and that withholding gender-affirming treatment is not a neutral option. So our role isn't to be gatekeepers, but to support our patients with their health needs. So primary care is a great place to centre trans health as we are experts in supporting people with normal life experiences. And although gender-affirming care often does require medical input, we're not dealing with an illness or a pathology. So ideally, we'd reserve secondary care for more complex cases where we require input from endocrinologists or mental health professionals. Um, and of course, surgical care will always require a referral. So in theory, primary care is well-placed to do this informed consent process, and it can certainly take a few appointments, as you've said, to go through all that information. But to do that, GPs would need to have adequate knowledge and experience to be able to, to do this. And in reality, many don't have enough transgender patients to have gathered that, that experience. Um, but if anyone is interested in exploring how a sort of informed consent model can work in primary care, I'm very happy to be contacted to, to discuss further how we've managed that in my practice. Thanks, Rona. So thinking general health care for a moment of transgender patients, an accessible healthcare service that is supporter of gender diversity is fundamental to the provision of good quality health care. There are transition needs, but then the general health care needs remain. So can you talk us through and discuss any tips to optimise the general health care of these patients and also to optimise screening? First of all, I think, do remember that many gender diverse people have had negative experiences of the health system and they may be feeling quite frightened or worried about coming to see you. So you really can help by creating an accepting and accessible environment and practice. So that could include things like having enrollment forms, which make it easy for people to fill in their gender identity, um, remembering the more than just male, female uh, options, um, and thinking about how you'll record the name your patient uses and their pronouns so that they don't need to correct people and remind people every time they come in. Have a clear way of recording it in your system so that everyone knows. Um, this could be an alert box that pops up when you open the medical record or, or whatever will work in your practice. And make sure you use those na the name and pronouns when you're sending referrals or talking to other staff or sending your patients texts and emails. And if you're doing any staff training, remember to include your reception staff. They're the first people that your patient meets, and that's a really important part of it. In your consultations, you know, think about what language you use. We're so used to using very gendered language, particularly when we talk about people's body parts or People often make assumptions about people's partners. So, so trying to avoid gendered terms and until you know what terms people prefer. You can ask your patient what names they use for their genitals, or some people might prefer the word chest to breast, things like that. And of course, make sure that anything you do ask or any examination that you're doing is indicated for the medical issue they're presenting with. It's obviously completely unacceptable to ask questions for your own curiosity rather than for a health-related purpose. So as you mentioned, uh, transgender and non-binary people need cancer screening, and that will be based on the tissues, the anatomy that they have present. So depending on whether somebody has had surgery or not and, and what uh, gender they were assigned at birth will we'll tell you what, what kind of cancer screening they need to have. 
it's really important to make sure that these recalls don't get lost when you if you change somebody's gender on your practice management system. Um, it'll depend on your own systems. But for example, a transmasculine person who has a cervix and is registered as a male on your computer system that you know often falls off the cervical screening recall system. And it's just really important that we make sure no one falls through the cracks and that you you have a system in place in your practice that that everybody uses so that so that this can be avoided. Um, and talking about cervical screening, you know, some of these procedures can can cause distress or might increase dysphoria. So people on masculinizing hormone therapy often experience vaginal atrophy and dryness, which can make smear tests uncomfortable. And, and it can also make, the, make it more likely that you get an inadequate sample as well. So one thing you can do is to use topical estrogen cream for two weeks before a smear test, and that can help. Um, and of course, being sensitive to the, to the fact that the procedure might be distressing and not rushing things and having a support person there for them. Good points there, Rona. Thank you. Thinking now about fertility preservation and contraception, prior to starting puberty suppression or gender-affirming hormone therapy, what do we need to consider here and what conversations should we be having? Yeah, so, so puberty blockers or, or GnRH agonists are reversible and don't affect fertility long-term. Um, but before starting sex hormones, it's really important to have conversations about fertility. So first of all, with the feminizing hormone therapy, that in, includes an androgen blockade, a testosterone blocker, which does irreversibly reduce fertility and sperm production. So everybody starting feminizing gender-affirming hormone therapy should be offered fertility preservation before starting. So that would usually involve um, attending a fertility clinic and having sperm frozen. And this is a funded service in New Zealand. The masculinizing hormone therapy that involves using testosterone. It's important to remember that testosterone is not, does not provide contraception. So people can still get pregnant while taking testosterone, even if they stop menstruating. Testosterone is absolutely contraindicated in pregnancy. So it's really important that anyone who could get pregnant uses contraception. If somebody who's using testosterone wants to become pregnant in the future, they can usually do so by stopping their testosterone. Um, and there are many examples of, of trans men, non-binary people on testosterone who've become pregnant and, and have babies. So anyone who's having sex that could result in pregnancy should use contraception. Hormone therapy is not a form of contraception. Great. Thank you for clarifying that. So thinking about sports people now, hormones and sports people, are there any contraindications or considerations that we need to have for transgender sports people? And what about the anti-doping agency? What's the advice there? Yeah, so generally with sport, the, the different sporting federations and organisations are the ones who, who decide if a transgender athlete is eligible to compete. So we would usually advise patients to contact their relevant sporting body. And if the individual organisation decides they are eligible, then the World Anti-Doping Agency can consider something called a therapeutic use ex exemption, um, because usually testosterone would be on their list of banned substances. They can exempt people in some cases. And in general, any hormone, the hormone levels would need to be the same as that of the cisgender athletes that they're competing with. Tell us about puberty suppression with the GnRH agonists. These can have a positive effect on future well-being. So early consideration is important. And you mentioned we should never we shouldn't be deciding who should have these hormones. Can you talk us through a little bit more about this? Yeah. So first of all, just to say that you know, gender diversity is pretty common in children. So GPs can reassure parents of this and support them to, to explore this. This doesn't necessarily mean the child is transgender, 
all children explore different ways of expressing their gender and, and many don't conform to society's gender expectations, you know, things like clothing or hair or, or toys they play with or whatever. But transgender children are usually insistent, consistent and persistent. Um, and some may also experience discomfort with their physical body. So no medical interventions needed before puberty, but families can be encouraged to affirm their child's gender identity and children might want to do this at school as well. So there could be some conversations needed there. And you can advise these families that allowing their child to, to live in their identified gender may relieve distress. Um, and remember that parents need a lot of support there. And there are supports out there for parents of transgender children, including a, a very good New Zealand website, which is called Be There. And we know that transgender kids, they do better when they experience love, support and acceptance from their families um, and strong family connections. So if this can be a complex area to manage. Um, and if a patient wants to start puberty blockers, this would usually require input from a paediatrician or a paediatric endocrinologist, uh, as well as a mental health professional. And your local health pathways would usually guide you as to the processes in your region so that you can connect and refer families to the right places. And again, withholding puberty blockers when they're needed is not a neutral act and can cause harm. They are considered to be safe and reversible and can hold off the changes of puberty to give the young person more time to explore their wishes and their identity without undergoing the irreversible process of puberty. So you've mentioned perhaps we need a multidisciplinary secondary care approach. Is that what I've gathered from what you've said or can this be commenced in primary care? It's unusual for them to be commenced in primary care without involving secondary care. Yeah, it's, it's a more complicated area and usually does involve more of a multidisciplinary approach, as you say. And the ideal window for commencement of treatment, Rona, what is this? Yeah, so if a child is insistent, consistent and persistent with their gender identity, they should be referred to local gender affirming services before the onset of puberty to ensure timely access to puberty blockers if it's required. So you'd usually be wanting to have conversations yeah, before puberty starts around nine years of age. And blockers are best started at Tanner stage two to three to delay the development of secondary sex characteristics. What if gender-affirming surgery is required further down the track? Do we need to think about this before starting these drugs? Again, I think this will be probably discussed by the um, secondary care clinics, really. But in trans-feminine people, blockers can limit the available penile and scrotal skin, to, which could be used in somebody wanting to have genital surgery in adulthood, if they were having surgery to create a vagina. But then this would also need to be balanced with the benefits of blockers, such as avoiding deepening of the voice and progression of other secondary sex characteristics. And the goals of treatment of GNRA agonists, what do these look like? So really, it's about stopping the pubertal changes, which could otherwise potentially cause intense distress when, when that puberty doesn't align with the child's gender identity. Puberty causes irreversible changes on the body and and we, you know, we see this a lot with adults who want to start hormone therapy, that these changes you know, can cause distress and, and dysphoria. So the blockers puts this process on hold. So it gives the child a bit more time to explore their gender options and their identity and, and to continue developing a bit more before they make any permanent decisions. So they're safe, they're fully reversible, and they've, they've been used for years for treating younger children with precocious puberty. So we do know quite a lot about their use. And that's really what they're used for. And what would a typical regime look like? 
So currently, um, Zolidex, is, which is a subcutaneous implant, is the only subsidized option. But there is uh, Lucrin, which is an intramuscular injection, is subsidized for people who can't tolerate Zolidex administration because it can be quite um, uncomfortable. And these prescriptions will need to be endorsed accordingly. They're usually given every 12 weeks and usually continued until the child starts sex hormones which is usually from around 16 years of age, but um, on a case-by-case basis, you know, I sometimes started at a younger age. And are there any other things we need to think about with these medications like bone health? Do we need to supplement with vitamin D or calcium? At what point do we need to consider a DEXA? What Mm. sort of things do we need to think about here? Yeah, so it seems that the main potential risk of blockers is the impact on future bone health, but it's, which isn't really yet clear. Uh, So it's good to, promote bone health with things like calcium intake, weight-bearing exercise, and consider using vitamin D. A DEXA scan wouldn't be done routinely. Um, That would be usually considered if there were other significant additional factors to reduce and reduce bone density. When one of our patients is on these medications, what sort of monitoring do we need to do in general practice? So if children, if they're coming to the GP practice for their injections, that would be a good chance for the GP to do a general check in on how they're going and you can monitor their mental health, um, ask if they're happy to continue the blockers, find out if they've got any concerns about pubertal progression despite the blocker and check in about side effects. There'll be guidelines available on, on exactly which blood tests are needed, but usually six to 12 monthly measurements of LH and then estradiol or testosterone um, and monitoring blood pressure, height and weight as well. And you can check their injection sites as well. Great. Thank you, Rona. So we're going to conclude this podcast with some take-home messages. What would your take-home messages be, Rona? Yeah, so my take-home messages would be to firstly to listen to your patient. They're the expert in their gender identity and their needs. So listen to them, treat them with kindness and respect. Then think about the changes that you can make as a practice, both in your clinic environment and in the knowledge and awareness amongst all the staff who work there to create accessible, welcoming and affirmative environments for your gender diverse patients. Don't make assumptions about someone's gender or sexuality. Use gender neutral terms until you know, and then use people's correct names and pronouns when you do know. Don't forget about contraception and cancer screening. Remember that parents of transgender children need support. And lastly, try to be an ally and an advocate for your patient. Thank you, Rona. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for listening and please tune in to episode two.